0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Well, so you know I'm the analytical mastermind. What I like to do is to bring in information, critically think about it, and think before I speak. It may not appear that way. But that's at least what I attempt to do. So I encourage that. And those listening, I'm guessing you are a critical thinker. You like to believe that you use logic and reason and, you know, take in what you hear. Be a little skeptical about it, but also try to come to the most logical uh, conclusion. Well, I'm going to help you with that today because I encourage that. Of course I do. I want everyone to be little mini masterminds. So what what did I do? I've dedicated this episode to John Guy and his book, Think Straight, The Owner's Manual to the Mind. And I think you're going to love this because in that book, he uh, analyzes critical thinking, you know, skepticism, conspiracy theories. You know I love that stuff. So we're going to talk about how to use our mind, how to know its weaknesses, understand the shortcomings of memory and perception, and how all of that plays a factor into how we remember stuff and process and logically think about it. It's truly fascinating, and this is Fascinating Nouns, no less. And if you enjoy Fascinating Nouns, Please, if you're listening to the podcast, share it with your friends, let them in on this little secret that you have, pass it along. It can really help out the show, it can help me grow and be able to do a lot more of these for everybody. And if you are it on YouTube, if you like the video version, which we started producing, you know, go to youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn, like, subscribe, comment, share, all those things. It helps us grow. I'd really appreciate it. But until then, we've got to talk to John Guy. We've got to get the show underway. So John, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, but I got to tell you, John, I love your name, John Guy, right? I mean, you can say <laughs> so that guy. It's super easy. You know, hey, I, he's my guy. You know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool name. Do you do you like Johnny? Because I love saying Johnny.
2: I, so so as simple as John Guy is, you wouldn't believe how much I have to explain my name, like, you know, calling the <laughs> bank or insurance company or something. Sure. Like yeah. my, my first name, like for legal reasons, is John Michael. And it's one word. Um, but I usually go by... John Guy so when I'm explaining it it's I always have to say John without an h no space between John and Michael <laughs> and then they ne- and then they never understand guy like they think it's g u i or something so I I always tell them yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so simple, but I always have to explain to him like, guy, like the opposite of girl. <laughs>
0: yeah. You know, I love that because, you know, for GUI is GUI. Everyone knows that. G- graphical user interface. Any computer <laughs> nerd knows that. Um, but it's funny because my last name is Glenn, but I can't tell you how many times I get Dave Green- or Glenn Daniels. I mean, it's it feels like the people who have those long. I mean, I knew a guy with a thirteen-letter first name. Everyone gets that right. <laughs> like yeah. there's no, no problems there. Um, but yeah, Dave Green, uh, my alter ego, Dave Green. Um, you <laughs> right. know, this is I got to tell you, John. This is kind of an interesting story because you know this may be we may discuss here one of the biggest turnarounds in fascinating nouns history. Because your story starts with you making arguably one of the most emotionally charged, irrational decisions in the world that almost, (laughs) frankly, ruined your life. And at the end of that, you ended up writing a book on critical thinking entitled <laughs> Think Straight, The Owner's Manual to the Mind. So, you know, I mean, its we're going to get into how you go from one to the other. Now, I got to tell you, I'm kind of a kindred spirit. Most people don't know this, but I have a little bit of a temper. So I understand how emotions can kind of change your reaction. So you won't get any judgment here. Um, but I want to talk about that. But before we get into your story here, John... You know, I want to know, the, the, the audience wants to know here, did you, know, I'm known as the analytical mastermind, you know, the patriot saint of critical thinking, and you <laughs> reached out to me about reviewing your book, and I, I respect that, you know, you wanted to be on the show. Now, the question I have for you, John, is, is that because you know that an endorsement from me will take this book to critical heights, giving it the credibility it needs to reach that next level of, of intellectual academia?
2: Um, is there an or there, or is that?
0: <laughs> no, nope,
2: that's um, no, nope, they're not at all. <laughs> oh, so um, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, so yeah, I mean, to to a certain degree, I think that it's important to market the book and get it out there, and um, you know, get as many people interested as possible, and using people who have you know an established uh, line of credibility and and so on, and and intellect and the ability to understand the book. Um, and translate that for an audience is extremely important um, so so definitely um, in in that aspect, promoting the book is important, and also I think it 's really important information for the world in general to have uh, when I was talking to uh, um, Richard Saunders last week, mm-hmm. he said that uh, you know if more people had read my book, the pandemic probably wouldn 't have panned out the way it did, and i couldn 't agree <laughs> more like critical <laughs> thinking is so important for yeah. for you know, any, any, you know, rational adult in society in the 21st century, we need these kinds of skills um, in in order to make proper decisions. So yeah, I guess it's a combination of those two things.
0: Well, I like, well, I'm giving it my stamp of approval here, John. So you, you you have it. So that's good. That's uh, the world needs to know that. I will tell you what I like about this book is that, you know, a lot of the techniques, in the book are things that I kind of knew, you pick them up along the way. And I think most people do as well. You know, you kind of learn that memory is not quite as good. You kind of learn that your eyes are seeing green, but what is green? You know, how that takes in, how, you know, how people make arguments. You can kind of learn, the, you know, how people, you know, fool's arguments and where they come in and how they seem to make sense, but they don't, yeah. you know, specious reasoning and all that. We kind of learn it as we go along. But this book does a great job of kind of tying everything together. Not only does it list everything, explain it, but it ties it into this broader scope, which is, you know, it's the subtitle of your book, The Owner's Manual to the Mind. Like how does the brain, well, it's not from a chemical standpoint, not how does the brain work, but how does this organ process information and how do we utilize it to take in what we see in the world think about it, and then spit out what we believe in the world. So I, I really enjoyed that part of it. You tied everything together
1: there, John.
2: Yeah, thank you, I appreciate that. That's, uh, um, that's good feedback. I, what I try to do is like I, like I have, you know, uh, I'm really big fans of like Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Guy mm-hmm. P. Harrison mm-hmm. and Richard Dawkins and people who have, have been able to take really complex scientific issues or arguments and really made them available for the layperson. So um, you saying that I did a good job at that is like fantastic news, know, I'm really happy about that. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. and I really did try hard um, to write the book in in a way that um, lay people can understand it. Right? A lot of a lot of books on critical thinking um, they're really um, they're really jargon laden, jargon laden, and um, they yeah. they kind of they kind of write the book as if Everybody reading it already has what you were talking about, like those rudimentary um, basics about like logic or memory or, or or whatever. And I wanted to go kind of more into the weeds with it. Um, I remember early on um, when I first started writing it, I picked up a uh, and Bond's book, How to Think About Weird Things. And I went, <laughs> I went, damn it, they already wrote my book. <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? yeah.
2: And, yeah. And so I kind of was striving to. Um, make it a little better than Chicken Bond's book, and not in the sense that, that, that it's, um, you know, their book was wrong. Their, their book is fantastic. But I wanted to go a little bit more into the weeds of the issues and kind of um, contemporize them so that we, um, so that a general reader can, if they're interested, they can look at the bibliography, they can go back and do their own research about uh, any particular topic that's relevant to, to today or even in the, in, in the past.
0: Well, I think you do that. Now, I will say, as a caveat, it isn't super accessible to everybody. I mean, because you do go into the weeds, but I think science, philosophy... Uh, uh, th- I mean, it's truly really a modern philosophy book. Th- those are difficult to make accessible, so it's not it's not inaccessible. But I don't know that it's readily available for everyone reading it. That doesn't mean everyone shouldn't try, because I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. Uh, but let's talk about it. So this is the culmination. I mean, this could be considered your life's work here, uh, but this kind of came to be under very interesting circumstances. You know, I teased it earlier, so let let's talk about this because you know I think it's important to watch your journey and 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 also it's it's. Ex- Extraordinarily interesting to see how one person can go from making an irrational decision to writing a book on how everyone should make rational decisions. So let's go back. You're 19 years old. You've been in, I think, Laramie, Wyoming for two weeks. You move from California. Uh, I know you've told the story a couple times. I'm going to try to speed through some of it, but I want to hear some of it in your words. And I also know before I say this that every time you tell the story it's going to be remembered differently and adjusted because every time we access our memories we're molding them a little bit like play-doh and i don't want to screw up your memories for you uh, but let's talk about it so you, you you you're 19 years old how in the world does a 19 year old fresh in wyoming end up being convicted of attempted second degree murder
2: yeah so i moved to uh wyoming to kind of get on my feet uh during the time I was living in California, I was in basically the lowest demographic for uh, potential employment. Um, so the, the market for getting a job out there was terrible. Um, I moved to Wyoming because a buddy of mine lived out here and he had an extra room. And he said, basically, if you can pull your weight as far as like food and gas goes, then you're welcome to stay. I won't charge you any rent. So I came out here basically to get on my feet and uh, I got a job right away. I got a call. I think it was like Friday or Saturday saying that I had passed my background check. My, my UA came back clean so I could start on Tuesday. So cool. So me and my roommate went to, went out to celebrate and we went to a, uh, it's called a tech party. There's a, uh, there's a tech university or sorry, a tech uh, school in, in Laramie called Wyotech, And mm, And okay. uh, a tech party is basically a bunch of tech students, uh, you know, having a party. So we went to a tech party. That, that's
0: And that's important to point out because I don't think anyone would have gotten that, that a tech party is is partying with tech students. So that's right, good yeah. that you that's good that you pointed that out. Critical thinking, you're using it, John. We got it's it. It's
2: not a, it's not like a techno party.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. That's fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's tech, um, it's tech technical people having a party, yeah, which is yeah. gotta be kind of a lame party. No offense. I know a lot of technical people. I don't know that this thing is popping off the rails, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it
2: wasn't like an IT desk party or anything. <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, we we were at that party for a while and we left. And, uh, on the way home, my roommate, Steve, he was driving, he wanted to drive me by the tattoo shop that was in town. Um, uh-huh. cause I, I mean, obviously I'm interested in tattoos, right? I love them. <laughs> I
0: yeah. Yeah. Them. I can see that now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, uh, so he was going to show me where the tattoo shop was. So we, we drove, we drove downtown and we were at a stoplight and about four or five guys were passing by and you could tell they were drunk and they started like slapping our car. We were in a Camaro. So they started slapping the car, saying, "You know, you don't know nothing about hot rods. This ain't no Camaro, and all that stuff." So we got out and we kind of confronted them, and was like, "What's what's the problem here?" You know, and uh, a li- not too much of a heated exchange, but a small heated exchange uh, transpired. And one of the guys from the crowd came up to me and he said, "Hey, man, I've been dealing with these guys all night. Please do me a favor, just get in the car and go." And I've been on his side of that before, with a you know wild crowd that you're trying to contain. And I've also been on their side of it where I was the wild crowd and I needed to be contained so I could respect his position, you know? So we got in the car and we drove about a block and uh, I'm not really sure if it's the same crowd or another crowd that saw the first altercation or something, but the same thing happened. People surrounded the car and they were screaming at us and, you know, slapping the car and stuff. So we got out to again, confront uh, this crowd and see, you know, I mean, are, are we looking at the, uh, an altercation here or what? We didn't know what was gonna happen. So uh, we got out of the car and um, this is where my memory already gets a little foggy and I can tell you why. Um, mm-hmm. When I got arrested, um, there was basically no evidence that I committed this crime. Nobody saw me with a weapon. Nobody saw me punch at this guy or swing at him or stab at him. They never found the, the, the knife I used. There was no blood on my clothes. so I took the case to trial thinking I could beat it, right mm-hmm. and um, so being locked up in Wyoming, I I didn't tell anybody that I was guilty. I didn't tell my mom, I didn't tell my siblings. I didn't tell my friends because everything's monitored through phone calls and and nobody's coming to visit me way out in Wyoming. so and I certainly didn't
0: but let me pause here for a second, Sean, because this is I've watched a lot of your interviews and I've read the court transcript. And now we're already starting to diverge a little bit. So at this point, you know you've already served time for this. Okay, so it's not like you can get double jeopardy on this. Do you know at this point you've stabbed him and you're trying to get away with it, or do you genuinely believe that you're not a hundred percent sure what happened?
2: I have for sure stabbed him. It's just the, the details of the event I'm not sure about. And what okay. I was, yeah, what I was explaining is that okay. because I didn't tell anybody. Um, uh, the truth about what happened. I basically right. lied about it for ten years. and uh, until my final appeal um, was denied. And then once that was denied, I penned out, you know, long letters to people who had stood by my corner uh, for the you know duration. and uh, but having lied about it for ten years, my memory of the details here gets really foggy. Right. Um, so i I can tell you from that point, um, when when we got out of the car, there was kind of, uh, no, like physical fighting, but a lot of melee. Cause there was me and my roommate and then about roughly 15 to 20 people, you know, pissed off and drunk and screaming.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And what I, what I remember is, um, I remember passing, um, the, 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 uh, agitator from the first altercation was walking towards me and I had already had a knife in my hand because there were so many people. And as we walked by each other, I, I kind of just swung my arm uh, around him and stabbed him like, uh, in his like mid back. Mm -hmm. And he kind of gave me like a kind of a weird look, like he didn't really understand what just happened. And he kept walking. And, um, as he was walking, my eyes were directed towards my roommate who had like a crowd of like 10 people around him. So I, as I was walking down there, I didn't hear anybody yelling like he's got a knife or he just stabbed that guy or anything like that. So I kind of just closed it and, and put it in my pocket And when I got towards my roommate, he uh, he had a big group of people around him. Well, I think it was the same guy who broke up the first altercation. He came and grabbed me by the arm and he said, the smart thing to do is grab your friend, get in the car and get out of here. So he led me through the crowd. And that's what we did. We got in the car and we took off. Well, it's, it's
0: crazy because you're, you know, it's a couple of, a couple of things here because, you know, in the court reports and everything, you did pull out your knife ahead of time. Right. So you, you, you'd already, that's already bad decision. Number one, like there's no critical <laughs> thinking there. Right. Because, you know, it's just like, you know, if you, if you have a gun, you don't point it at someone unless you're going to shoot at them. You don't pull out a knife unless you're going to stab someone or defend yourself. Uh, so it's interesting that you came from there. And I also know, you know, you've mentioned this another other, podcast podcasts as well that you had, you know, things weren't going great in California yet a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a history there. Um, you know, clearly anger t- plays a part in this. You know, you had, you know, um, uh, your brother overdosed on heroin and that kind of messed you up. So you had, you had a lot going into this event. There's a lot going on here. And so I think, you know, it's interesting because a couple of things you point out there, critical thinking wasn't your wasn't your strong suit at that point, right? Uh, <laughs> I think we can at least agree on that, right? But what's, but you you bring up a fun a, fu- a fun a funny point here, which is that you know you weren't telling the truth about this story, and that's the interesting thing about memories, right? Like I happen to have people in my family who are um, they, they don't tell the truth a lot. So like my one of my brothers is kind of um, pathological liar. Pathological liar, yeah, uh, but he's brilliant at it right? You know, he's like a con man in that he can tell a lie and make you believe that it's true. And so there's an interesting thing going on there with memory. I never know what he believes is the truth or not. But what you're saying here is fascinating because it's, you remember the events in a certain way, but then you had to not tell the truth because you're trying to get. Yeah, look, everyone's trying to get you know get away with. it, You're trying to you know not get sent to jail. So for ten years you don't tell the truth, but then you're telling yourself a story which then kind of supplants the original memory, or at the very least confabulates it, where now it's part of another memory, and so it's hard for you now to recall that memory. That you know, and that's one chapter in your book, and that's super interesting because you know even at one point you know it's funny in the uh, in the court reports you talk about how you don't remember having. The knife, and you know, you you had people go on the stand and testify that you didn't have a knife. You lost it weeks earlier, and then on a podcast, you tell the guy the make and model of the knife, how it's spring loaded. So it's it's interesting because in some ways you can't really tell fact from fiction, but that is important because. You know, again, you're using critical thinking in one respect because you're trying to get out of a crime. You're trying to use the evidence in your advantage, which is what every lawyer does and every every person does. But mm-hmm. at the same time, in the way you're changing events, which then alter your perception of reality. I'm giving you a big mishmash here, but that's all the stuff you've just talked about right now at the beginning of the story, um, which you know it's kind of interesting. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, and it, I think it's especially uh, compounded because not only was I um, I, not only was I lying and it had completely fabricated an alternative story that I thought was convincing for um, people in jail and the lawyers and the court systems and all that, but I was actively trying to convince myself that it was true so that my presentation was more compelling. Right. So it's uh, like
0: method. You're like a method actor. You didn't even know it. You're doing <laughs> method.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And it was, uh, you know, and and uh, I always tell people that when they ask like what doing time is like. I always tell them it's like that last 30 seconds in front of the microwave that just takes forever. But mm-hmm. it is forever. It takes like, you know, to do, to do 10 years. years in prison, it feels like 50 years, you know.
1: Yeah.
2: And yeah. Um, so for 10 years, uh, I was, you know, anybody who asked, I would tell them. And I was I would kind of um, make myself out to be the victim because, I mean, in, in, in all reality, I think that I was overcharged and I think I was over sentenced. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was charged as you, as you mentioned with attempted second degree murder and I did not intend to kill that guy. I intended to stab him, which is right. an aggravated assault, but I certainly right. didn't yeah, yeah, attempt yeah. To, to kill him. If I attempted, if I wanted to kill the guy, I would have tried harder. You or know, you and the I did, neck. Get right. I mean, I, I mean there's all yeah, kinds right. of things that, you know, would have, should have, could have happened. And, uh, yeah. if, if that was my intent and actually, I don't know if I told you this or not, uh, prior to the interview, but, um, when I got charged, I did get charged with aggravated assault, mm-hmm. and then um, I went to what's called a preliminary hearing, and it basically is, determines whether or not to bind you over to the district court, and right. okay. um, when I went in there, the bailiff came up to me and handed me the, uh, my charges and, and told me, the judge is going to read you this um, when they call your name. Well, they they called my name right then, just by chance, so I'm reading okay. this in real, in real time, and right. they say that, you know, Mr. Uh, John Michael Guy, you're being charged with one count of attempted second degree murder. And I threw up in the courtroom right then. I, I couldn't believe I was being charged with attempted murder and I just couldn't handle it. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I yeah. threw up in the courtroom. It was like, this just got yeah, real. very, very real, you know? Yeah.
0: You know, it's funny cause I was reading it and I did find that interesting that it was not, that it was aggravated assault because second degree murder, that's a big deal. Right, like that's one away from first degree murder, attempted or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, so I did think that was a little weird. I also thought there was an. Um, the Billing Gazette said you stabbed your friend. Uh, I and, saw and that. I've
2: seen that before.
0: Yeah, I didn't. So I, I'm guessing you weren't friends, or
2: uh, no, I didn't know a single person in Wyoming other than my roommate at that time. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that one before too, and it that doesn't make any sense at all.
0: Yeah, it's a, a little weird, but you know what's kind of interesting about this whole thing is you become very active in the appeals process. So you're, you, you know you're put in you're put in jail. You got 17 years for this, and or I think you actually were convicted of 35 to 40. Uh, what was so the actual originally,
2: sentence? Originally, I got sentenced to 30 to 45 years, okay. and then about five years later, I got a sentence reduction down to 25 to 40, and with good time, I did 17 on 25. And then I have to do the I have to do the remaining difference on parole. So I have like nine years of parole left. Whoa! I mean, at least you're out of prison, right? Yeah. <laughs> nine parole years of doesn't, a bother, lot. Me. Oh, parole really? doesn't yeah. bother me a bit. Yeah, it 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 really is. A, a friend of mine told me the other day we were talking about this very thing, and he said, "You know what parole is? It's how you should just behave anyway. <laughs>
1: it's just fair you enough." Know,
2: and that's, yeah. and that's how I see it. You know, I don't, I don't use drugs. I don't drink. I don't get in trouble. So I really, it doesn't bother me a bit.
1: That's
0: good. Okay. Well, so, and that's interesting because as this is going on, you kind of get into litigation and, you know, there's this interesting appeal that I read. I'll put some of this stuff on the website as well. So people can follow along. Um, but you know, you file for an ineffective assistance of trial counsel, uh, you claim prejudice of the prosecuting attorney. Uh, I imagine that these, you know, these kind of get filed all the time but how how involved were you in that appeals process was that your lawyers was it you were you doing the research
2: uh i was intimately involved from from beginning to end uh a lot of uh i I bought my trial transcripts like as soon as i got to prison uh which was was about six months after i got sentenced um i bought my trial transcripts i combed through them uh, i learned how to um navigate LexisNexis and try to figure out what case law is relevant.
0: (laughs) That's a thing from the past. Yeah. LexisNexis. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, so yeah,
2: uh, I, I started, you know, learning what shepherdizing cases was and how to find relevant claims. And, uh, um, so it was kind of a back and forth between myself and my attorney, um, who would, I mean, she was really receptive to what I had to say, because I would write her out, you know, long, not in brief format, but basically in legalese, like, Hey, this mm-hmm. is what I found. This is how I think it applies. And, uh, I did that, um, for the first appeal pretty in depth. And then, uh, the, the subsequent appeals, I had a different attorney uh, or set of attorneys. It was uh, law students from the university of Wyoming that helped me with my case, uh, through that process. Um, And again, it was the same thing. I was I was I spent most of my time uh, of my free time reading case law and trying to understand what is prosecutorial misconduct. What does ineffective assistance of counsel mean? Things like that. And like like uh, as it applies to critical thinking, I can tell you about attempted second degree murder. There's a whole bunch of states that don't even recognize attempted second degree murder because they call it a logical impossibility.
0: Yeah, I was going to say it doesn't make any sense because how can you, because second degree murder is basically, you didn't do it on purpose is, is spur of the moment, but how can you attempt? I mean, it, it is weird, logically.
2: Yes, yeah, so logically. So so legally and logically, second degree murder is exactly what you said. It's it's an intentional act with an unintentional outcome, right? But uh-huh. any any attempt crime, when you attach an attempt to a crime, it means that you specifically intended to cause the outcome. And right. He, right. In, in right. most yep. courts or a lot of courts have held that You cannot specifically intend to do something whose consequences not intended. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't intend to do something unintentionally.
2: You can't do it. <laughs> right. right. right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. A lot of states don't even recognize attempted second degree murder as an actual crime. And to make matters worse in Wyoming, um, there's a there's a legal standard called uh, um, a lesser included offense. So. In Wyoming, aggravated assault is not a lesser included offense of attempted second degree murder, Mm -hmm. because in order for something to qualify as a lesser included offense, it has to include elements of the greater in the lesser. Right. And the elements of attempted second degree murder are purposely maliciously intend to kill. Mm -hmm. And the elements of aggravated assault are um, intentionally recklessly cause bodily harm and and whatever, right? Right, Well, one statute uses the word purposely and the other one uses the word intentionally. And you seriously cannot find a dictionary that doesn't use one of those terms to define the other, but they decided in the courts that intentionally and purposely (laughs) are not the same thing. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you could even if you're asking me, I don't know how I would define those without using one of the other words, without you, you using can. that word I mean, itself. Right.
2: I mean, Webster, you know, Oxford, they can't yeah. do it. So, we, yeah. you know, certainly we couldn't do it. Sure. And so one of the things that that does in, in Wyoming is if the jury if the jury thought I stabbed the guy, but they didn't think I tried to kill him, they don't have a lesser included offense. That they could convict me of. So it's an all or nothing uh, proposition.
1: Right.
0: Well, it, it, I mean, it's fascinating because I love the way you're thinking about this and this starts your journey, right? So we, you, you end up in, in prison, you end up in the system, two weeks in Wyoming, you know, you're already in the prison system, but you start taking this active role in your litigation. You know, you're explaining to me how you're critically thinking about this, you know, and so much so, I mean, I think the, uh, the appeals end up failing. So you don't, you don't get out early. Um, but, you know, you bring suit against, you know, you got, you had like a little a lawyer bug, you brought suit against the Department of, of corrections, the Wyoming Department of Corrections, because you wanted the humanist religion, humanist to be defined as a religion. And it's great because I was wondering why, why you would want to do that, but you explain it really well in that, you know, in prison, there aren't a lot of, um, there's not a lot of privileges. And so being part of a religion actually gives you privileges, but this is fascinating. So this is where you start to see the turn, right? Where you start to really start using your time there to critically think. So tell me quickly, how did you work through that, um, that case in particular?
2: Um, so in that case in particular, um, you, you mentioned that I had got involved in, in litigation against the Department of Corrections specifically. And I did file, um, I, I sued the Department of Corrections 14 times in civil suits, um, independent of my criminal appeals. And, mm-hmm. I, I was, and I think a lot of that was because I was not a critical thinker. I, I was conspiracy minded. And I thought, that they were malicious and out to get us. And I didn't know about Hanlon's razor and, you know, other, you know, thinking tools like that. And I, I, uh, I was really interested in what was going on behind the scenes, you know, and a lot of the times I had to sue them for public records or whatever, to try to figure out what it was they were doing. And most of the time I came out empty handed, you know, a couple of times, I, I realized that there were a few little mistakes, but they were more innocent than anything. Um, that one in particular, um, what you had mentioned is there's not really privileges uh, in, in prison, right? But religions, um, because, of the, because of the First Amendment, uh, prisons have to kind of accommodate religion so that they can continue practicing fundamental beliefs while maintaining security within the institution. Right. So mm-hmm. things like um, having particular jewelry or eating certain foods or um, having certain like ornaments that are pertinent to their practice or whatever – Those things are permitted if you are religious. If you're not religious, you do not get to eat special food. You do not get to have jewelry and so on and so forth. So this is part of that whole problem with religious privilege, not just in in the penal system, but in our country. So um, the uh, one of the legal standards is that freedom of religion entails freedom from religion. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's Mm -hmm. the same exact thing. So. Uh, What I tried to establish was kind of just a study group for atheists and humanists to get together and talk about what we believe or, you know, uh, what have you. And they denied me the opportunity to basically rent a room um, for a a particular time once a week for an hour to -hmm. get together and have, you know, discussions about whatever is is relevant to our belief system. And they told me, no, um, you know, humanism is not a religion as defined by our policies. And I so I sought to change that because they wouldn't they wouldn't say it was. So I contacted uh, the American Humanist Association and um, they responded. And a few months later, they had reached out to an attorney in Wyoming uh, who could practice law in the state. And uh, he showed up to visit me one day and he said, you must have some powerful friends in Washington. And I said, "Why is that?" And he said, "Because they got me down here for free."
1: <laughs> oh wow, that's <laughs> so, great. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. So, um, so he he and I still talk too. He's a, he's, he's an awesome guy. He's a great man. Uh, Steve Aaron is his name. Uh, he he's he's an amazing attorney and and actually really a good friend these days. Um, but uh, you know, we went over the case and um, we took it uh, to court. And basically, what the what the Department of Corrections did in that case was, um, in order to um, avoid any kind of uh, attorney's fees or punitive damages or uh, injunctions they basically just changed their policy they just wrote humanism into their book of approved uh, religions and said, oh the lawsuit is moot <laughs> we do we do allow this now okay and. Uh, so I won, but I didn't really win. <laughs>
0: sure. Well, you didn't have to pay for the lawyer, but but that's great. So you so that so that was your first victory, really. Like that's a legal victory. And mm-hmm. you know, I think you mentioned someplace. You know, you you were into litigation. You were doing all this stuff. Clearly, you were thinking about it. Clearly, you were looking at all the angles. How does this stuff work? How does it work together? How do, what what are definitions? How do we perceive that? You know, that, that's all part of that critical thinking process. And after the, the, the litigation. You know, you got into science, philosophy, you know, and this is a well-cited book and it was written while you were in prison, correct? I mean, this is so this must have been very difficult to get all the books. You know, you got to do all the citations, uh, you know, you got hard to research articles. Uh, but this, you know, this seems to be a culmination of that process, which started the reason you were in there. And this is not what a lot of prisoners do, right? Like the reason you were in prison becomes whether you intended or not becomes the driving force onto how you, you righted that wrong. Like, you know, it almost seems like you made this goofy error and you're like, how, what can I do to make sure that that never happens again? And that was the culmination of this book. Uh, so walk me through how you started it and, and a little bit of the process and how this book came to be. Cause I want to get into some of the details. So I don't want to get too caught in the weeds, but let's, yeah. let's talk about how you started this, this book.
2: Well, I want to I want to I don't want to give myself too much credit there. Um, okay. and I appreciate it. Well, you're not but, like um, me then
0: cuz I would take full credit. <laughs> so you and I are two very different animals, but you take yeah. as much credit well, as you think you deserve.
2: So so you're right in that I did make a conscious decision to try to uh, you know, turn this negative experience into something that was worthwhile that not only benefited me, but but other people in the process. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that, you know, the, the whole thought process of what can I do? How can I do that? Was integral to making that change. Um, But what I want to take a little bit of credit for myself is that it took me, you know, it took me 10 years in prison to try to get to that place where I actually felt like this was something that I needed to do. Um, So when I did, yeah, I started, uh, I started subscribing to um, Skeptical Inquirer magazine and Skeptic magazine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was really, you know, blown away by it because it was really like, Uh, an intellectual discourse that I hadn't experienced before. Mm -hmm. And it was really challenging a lot of like my core beliefs about like, I've, I've believed in aliens and I believed in chemtrails and nine 11 conspiracies and all that kind of stuff. Well, you don't know. No, no, no. When I first started reading those magazines, I did.
0: Oh, well, I uh, believe in some of that stuff now, but we'll, we'll get into that. That's uh, (laughs) you you may set me straight at the end of this.
2: (laughs) So, yeah. So, um, and it was really what I respected about it is, is, um, in my experience, skeptics and, and skeptical communication is extremely respectful. And it's not like, you know, this, this, uh, highfalutin condescending conversation. It's like, here's the evidence, here's how we looked at it and here's what we concluded. And I really appreciated kind of that logical process sure. of walking somebody through the, you know, something that they may believe strongly and, and now don't, don't anymore. It was really right. good for me to make that kind of transition. So um, from there, I got uh, I started reading books by Richard Dawkins and Michael mm. Shermer and Guy sure. P. Harrison. And and uh, I was just I was fascinated. I loved them. Um, mm-hmm. And I came across a, a DVD great course by uh, Professor Stephen Novella um, called Your Deceptive Mind. And uh, it, it was it was, you know, fantastic. I loved it. And I thought, why don't prisoners have kind of a prison inmate ran group? where we could teach this kind of stuff to each other, because I I really thought at the time that it could make a serious impact on recidivism. And having written the book now, I've come across tons of research that we actually know that that is true, that teaching um, logic and philosophy and critical thinking skills actually does have an impact on recidivism. So I have to say that uh, that was the impetus that inspired the whole project. And when I sat down to write it, I was kind of struck by the Dunning-Kruger effect, where I thought, well, this is I know this topic really well. Uh, I could probably knock this out in about six months. And the more research I started doing, the more I realized that I didn't really know anything about the topic. Yeah. And uh, so uh, I got heavily into the weeds and part of that process. So in prison, at least in the prison I was in, you can only own 14 books at a time. So uh, if you're looking at my bibliography, you're like, well, how did you, how do you have 300 books in there? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would basically do is I had kind of a team of supporters of family, friends, and uh, academics and professors who taught uh, at colleges. Mm -hmm. And I would basically say, hey, can you buy me this book and this book? And I would, you know, I would ask my mom or I would ask my friend Dave or ask my friend Jamie or whatever. And a bunch of people would just send me, you know, five or six books at a time. And I'd I'd get through them. And then when I wanted to get research papers, I would reach out to uh, professors and uh, give them a list. Hey, I need this paper. And I would uh, write out the citation. And then a couple of weeks later, I would get you know, a packet in the mail full of science papers and I would get through those and, uh, you know, incorporate that into my writing. So it was it was a huge process. It's not like just getting on the Internet and going, OK, I need to find this. Or, critical okay, just
1: thinking this. into Google. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work
2: like that. <laughs> right, it, it, It's a much more arduous process, but sure. I mean, highly worth it in the end. I think. So if you can
0: only have 14 books, if you got a new book, did you have to send one to the library, give one to a buddy to hang on to? So you could have 28. I mean, could you find like one of the dopes in the prison who didn't want to read at all (laughs) and use his 14 as your 14? Could you do something like that?
2: So some of that does happen. Absolutely. Like I would have a roommate who didn't have any books and if they were going to come do like a matrix check to see if we were in compliance with the property matrix, I would definitely put some in my roommate's box. Um, But typically what I did was I would, uh, I would just go to the uh, library and donate them to the library there you go. because there they you really go. didn't have any science. Like the nonfiction section in one of my libraries had like Bigfoot, Atlantis, monsters, vampires. I love it. Like that wasn't, that wasn't a nonfiction <laughs> second, section. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, it's great. That's where I'd be. <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of changed that in that I, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, I must've left, I don't know, 300, 400 books behind. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, the, the prisons have a little science, you know, philosophy, critical thinking section in their in their libraries now, which I think is really cool.
0: That's great. Well, you know, I, I have to tell you, I'm a little disappointed in you because, you know, I'm looking, as I was reading your book, looking at your citations, I'm looking back at my, you know, my shows. And I've had Elizabeth Loftus on the show. I've had Stuart Weiss. You mentioned Ancient Aliens. You know, one of my co-collaborators on many uh, many shows is Dr. Michael Denon, who is the only scientific mind, arguably, you know, uh, in lieu of being the analytical mastermind. He is the analytical guy on that show. Um, next week, I'm doing um, an episode on Milgram and the Obedience Experiment. Experiment. But nowhere in your citations, John, do I see fascinating nouns. Episode one ninety seven, <laughs> uh, Stuart Bias interview. Um, are there any plans to, to kind of pitch, you know, shoehorn me in there anywhere, or is this already at print and I'm kind of SOL?
2: Yeah, you're at SOL. The book comes out in three days. Uh, so, okay. um, and 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 in my defense, I had no idea what a podcast was until about a year and a half ago. I didn't oh, know wow. it existed. I didn't have access to them. Yeah, I had no clue. So yeah. uh, <laughs> in my defense, I'll, I'll right. plead I- uh, ignorance on that one.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. I'll, I'll give you that. I didn't let you plead the fifth because I, I I would almost charge you as guilty for that. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, so let's talk about it. So critical thinking, you know, this is a really interesting book because, you know, uh, there's lots of, you know. it's also fun that you use a lot of prison examples in the book, which <laughs> which is kind of funny because I think the, the prison system, you could do a whole episode on just the, um, the whole microcosm, that is a prison, you know, uh, how it works, um, the culture, uh, you know, it's very different than anything, but we're not going to get into that. But this is, you know, really the art of thinking. And I consider myself an open-minded skeptic. You know, I think critical thinking is vital. You know, I tend to believe, I like to believe certain things. It's more like I believe things are possible. And I'll give you something that, that might be right in your wheelhouse that you would shoot down immediately. But, you know, the the, the moon landing is a great example that I like to use because, given what I know about the time period of the 60s and how at each other's throats we were with the Russians, if you told me that the moon landing was faked, I would say, well, we definitely landed on the moon. So that's not true. But if you told me that it, that the landing that we saw on television was filmed in a studio, I could believe that because I've seen what the government did to hide are technology from the Russians so that does not seem outside the realm of possibility do I believe that that happened I'm not convinced of it but if you told me it could happen or that it did happen I could believe it and I think sometimes I fall into that category where a lot of these seemingly outlandish incredible claims they do seem possible I don't know that they necessarily are I wouldn't go to bat for them but I definitely could see where people would believe that they do and I don't fault them for it where do you fall about that
2: well, uh, I think Buzz Aldrin said that it, uh, in, in re, re, uh, reference to whether or not the moon landing was real, he said it would have been harder to fake than to actually do it. And, you know, the mm-hmm. reason for that is because there was like about 400,000 people involved in that project. And in order, if you've ever been in a, involved in a project with more than six people, you know that it's extremely difficult yeah, oh, to get yeah. everybody to, to agree on something definitely and then when the project gets a little bit bigger it's almost impossible to know uh, you know the left hand never knows what the right hand is doing so in especially order in to the face, government yeah.
1: Really,
2: yeah I mean the government I mean Stephen Hawking said that you know uh, if if uh, he was talking about aliens visiting the planet and he said if the governments are conspiring to keep uh, alien invasions a secret then they're doing a much more competent job at that than they're doing anything else because you know right. governments are infamously terrible at most things that they do
0: now, now we'll say i'm going to pause you there because to counter that argument if that is true and i happen to believe in aliens and i've interviewed several people on here who are very convincing and i'm not easy to convince but i will say that the stakes for hiding alien presence here would be much higher than, say, the stakes on, you know, passing climate control, right? Like those are high. And I think that our our impending doom could be at stake. But I think even alien visitation, given what that could do to the public, is higher. And therefore, the higher stakes, I think, would create a group that would do a better job. So, you know, to compare it to the traditional everyday runnings of the government, I understand that. But I think that that would that would be another tier. That would just be my argument against that.
2: Yeah, and I, I would say that, like, if if, if we assume that, that aliens have visited the planet, then we can't be American-centric about it and assume that they're just visiting the United Definitely, States. Right. Yeah, they, yep. they would probably take an interest in China and Russia. And a lot of the times, these countries are at, at great odds with each other. Mm-hmm. And using something like, hey, you've been lying to your citizenry sure. about alien visitations and we know yep. about it, is a huge blackmail option. And that's never happened. Right. <laughs> And uh, I mean, even even deeper into that, um, if you get into um, yeah, books by like Carl Sagan or uh, Lawrence mm-hmm. Krauss, and they talk about the actual physics of space travel, right. what would it take for an alien uh, or extraterrestrial to to even come across our planet, right? Let alone invade it in secrecy um, for you know whatever you know purposes they have. It's exceedingly unlikely that the the, the the whole idea of traveling across space and time and, you know, happening across our planet. I mean, the odds of that are so minuscule uh, and, and and a lot of it defies basic physics that it just is so impossible that I would I'm much more convinced by the skeptical position on that than I am for any kind of, you know, secret alien <laughs> operations that's going on.
0: No, th- that's fair. But a lot of that. Th- so there's two assumptions, because when you talked about the moon landing, I never said it was faked. Like, I don't agree with that. I'm saying if you could convince me that what we saw on television was shot in a studio, you could probably convince me of that. To fake it, I agree, because one of the great things you bring in your up in your book, which I think this is critical when it comes to these types of, of claims, which are an incredible claim requires incredible evidence. But also, if X is true, what else has to be true on to make X true. And I think that that's a good, good argument what you're saying with the, with the moon landing, where if we didn't land on the moon, there is so much else that would have to also be true to make that true. And those, I think, at the very least, we, what is true is true, what isn't isn't. All we can do is figure out, you know, make our best guess on it. But I think those are ways to really narrow down what could be possible and what isn't possible. And I would say that when you're talking about alien visitation, there's a lot of assumptions that aliens happen to come across us. When, when you talk to some people who are into this, they say, well, either they're responsible for us or they've been visiting for a very long time. So it isn't the, the act of it being random makes it more plausible. I'm not saying significantly more plausible, but it's not it may not be random and therefore makes it a little bit a little bit of a different argument. But I still think what you're saying holds a lot of water.
2: Yeah, for sure. and I, I that was one of the things I stressed throughout the book is if 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 x is true, what else has to be true? Right. Um, if the government is concealing uh, uh, um, alien visitation, one of the things that has to be true is that they are spending money. To conceal this operation. Right. And if that's true, then we have to have people who have an assiduous effort to conceal that kind of spending so that FOIA requests don't uh, unveil their operation. And if we assume that's true, then that operation also has to be funded and covered up. And it's kind of like an infinite regress of cover up after cover up after cover up. And I just don't uh, it's just implausible in the sense that and that's just one little aspect of it. But it's implausible in the sense that if if the government is covering that up, what what else has to be true? Well, then the other governments are in collusion with us and they're hiding that and they're they're hiding the spending and our tax dollars aren't being appropriately tracked. And there's all sorts of like I mean, even between political parties, like, do you think if Trump knew that Obama had a program, that was hiding uh, the existence of, of alien visitation, he wouldn't have blew that out of the water or vice versa. You know, wouldn't Biden have done that to Trump or wouldn't China have done that to us or Russia done that to China or something. It's just too, there's too many, there's too many, What else would have to be truths that are highly implausible in order for me to be convinced that that's the case? That's
0: fair. I don't want to go too down the alien road because I've got a counterargument for every argument that you have. Um, And and that that could be a whole other discussion. I happen to be passionate about it, and I think there's a lot of legitimacy to it. But one of the things that's interesting about our conversation here is you have this great analogy in the book, a brain like a vending machine. Um, It can bring, take things in, you know, it can take a counterfeit bill and accept it as real, Uh, just like we can take in um, counterfeit ideas and accept them as real. And also, if you take a dollar bill that maybe, you know, is kind of messed up. Uh, it may reject it. Well, that could be an idea that probably has a little bit of truth, but a little bit of BS attached to it. And it spits back out. Um, as you mentioned, you fold it and kind of move it and make it so that the vending machine can accept it. Uh, you can switch a lie around or a truth around so that our brain accepts it. Uh, I really love this analogy that I butcher the analogy that I get it right. And how did you come across this?
2: Um, so no, you got it. You got it right. For the most part. Um, one of the, one of the challenging things about this analogy was it is such a powerful analogy and you can really push it pretty far, but, uh, publishers are oftentimes worried about word count. So I tried to crunch this really strong, um, um, analogy into a few paragraphs. And, uh, um, but I, I also did really like it. Um, how did I come across this one? I, I don't really remember how I came across this analogy i I want to say it was it was purely my idea but i I don't remember how I came across it so I can't guarantee that's the case. Just say um, it is
0: what is wrong am I not taught you anything John Just say you know what I came up with this brilliant idea yeah one day I was trying to get some some chips from the from a vending machine and I put in this crappy di- I could come up with a whole story here you know I this is false memories put them into people's minds John and you'll be there you'll be there uh you know. Their leader.
2: Um, (laughs) That's great. Um, Well, I'm not really sure, but I know I I will take credit for um, for for developing it and and pushing it to its limits. And uh, and uh, so, yeah, the idea is basically that um, our brains kind of work um, like like a vending machine does in that it accepts information. Um, the term I use in the book is veridically, and what I mean by that is just kind of the the um, blase acceptance of information without further processing, right? We, we, mm-hmm. we typically process information veridically through system one, and unless something violates um, our internal models of reality, that information is never really challenged. And the same thing goes with the vending machine analogy, right? If you put a bill into it, um, it has basically a programming instructions that read the bill and it has an expectation of what legal tender really is. And unless something obviously violates those programming instructions, it's going to accept the bill, Right. which is one thing that happens with vending machines is they're susceptible to counterfeit bills if their programming instructions aren't up to date with the current um, uh, technology in counterfeiting money, right? It's Mm -hmm. kind of an arms race about Uh, technology and counterfeit bills. Right.
1: Right. And we
2: have the same sort of processing. We have um, kind of we can call it our program instructions that uh, look out for counterfeit bills. Right. And uh, and if something is obviously wrong with the bill or the information that that's given to us, then we activate system two and we kind of analyze it, see what's wrong with it, and then send it back to system one for processing um, whether it's to reject the information or accept the information and um, like you mentioned you can you can get even if you have a good bill right good legal tender and let's say you have good accurate information if you if you smooth out that bill and feed it back into the system sometimes it still doesn't take it still might not take your the programming instructions say no this is not good Right. And if our internal models of reality um, are discordant with what is what is actually represented of reality, it doesn't matter how accurate the information we're fed is. It doesn't matter how much smoothing out you can do, but people might be fed that accurate information and their internal models of reality or their programming instruction says, uh-uh, this isn't true. I don't believe it.
0: And I think that that's fascinating because, you know, when we get to memory and our perception, how we actually perceive reality, there is this belief that, A, memory always works and it's like a video camera. And if we see something, we believe it. But this is interesting because, you know, I mentioned I, I, I'm not one to shy away from a shameless plug. I did an episode with with the memory expert, Elizabeth Loftus, and we talked about how, you know, how imperfect memory is and how it can be changed and, and molded. And in that, we talked um, about uh, Dr. Julia Shaw, who uh, won't do my show. I got, I've been trying to get her on the show. She's fascinating, uh, although a little diabolical because she created an experiment where she actually put created false memories in people's brains. So uh, this people tells you,
2: committing crimes that never happened. <laughs>
0: right. So it's it's crazy, but you bring up this point in the book where you have episodic memory which is autobiographical information. This is remembering uh, an event. Oh wait, no. This isn't. Wait, this isn't what I wanted to say. No, no, no. Uh, this is what it was. I'm sorry. That that is true, uh, and that no, may that come into true. play. Um, but it's just, just mem- and verbatim. Where just is how we felt when a memory was created, and verbatim is how it happened. Uh, and you say this, um, uh, this. Uh, I'm screwing this whole thing up because we remember episodic memory as well as we think we remember semantic memory. That's the point I'm trying to make, which is we think we remember an event. Uh, the way we remember a fact, whereas two plus two is four. And those things are not the case because of just because of the feelings we had at the time. Um, And that every memory is kind of split into a bunch of different categories and then reconnected in the hypothalamus to recreate the event. Uh, So anyway, memory is all screwed up, number one. And then number two, what we bring in as that memory, you know, our eyes see color. Well, what is color? Color doesn't even exist. Color is just the way our eyes perceive an electromagnetic um, spectrum, a little bit of the electromagnetic spectrum. Ears, what we hear, sound. Listening to me, you may love it, and you know, ladies definitely love listening to the voice here, but what is that? It's nothing. All it is is the, the vibration of air molecules that if you're not sensing it with your eardrum, it doesn't exist either. Uh, yeah, this type agree. of stuff is fascinating, John. This is really where you get your whole mind messed up on what is reality, what isn't, and it goes to that vending machine aspect as well. I gave you a lot there. I kind of went off, but you know, help, help straighten this
2: out for me, okay? Well, so first of all, uh, when I was writing the book, um, obviously, um, I was writing it from prison, and one of the things I did was I, I was reaching out to experts in particular fields, um, mm-hmm. to you know send in my material and say, uh, do I know what I'm talking about? Does you know, is this it all good? <laughs> right? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, that's key. Um, <laughs> I sent my chapter on memory to Elizabeth Loftus, huh. and uh, she sent it back, and with you know, I think she had five or six small corrections to it and said, other than these little changes, I think you've written an excellent chapter on memory and thank you for your contribution, which was, I mean, you couldn't get a better praise than that from literally literally the world leading expert uh, on the topic. So I was, I was, was, you know, ecstatic to get that review from her. And then uh, um, when I was going through the publishing process, I reached out to her again. and I asked her if she wanted to uh, write an advanced blurb for me. And she couldn't remember reading the chapter, which I thought was so ironic and just so fantastic. That's perfect.
1: <laughs>
0: you it could have told him, if you want to take a page out of Julia Shaw's book just tell her she'd already wrote the the, 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 the beginning and she just needed to rewrite it. I mean you could yeah, have implanted exactly. a memory this is you, you miss an opportunity here John
2: That would have been so fantastic yeah um, but so yeah so what you're getting into is uh, my discussion about um, the differences between episodic memory and semantic memories right so episodic memory as you alluded to was uh, you know uh, understanding things like, uh, events or concepts or um, ideas or, or so on and then uh, semantic memories is, is more about under uh, remembering details
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: uh, about particular things right so like you said two plus two equals four uh, you know red looks this way or, you know, that building is square. Right. Right. So when the, the, so because we have, um, the the, the degradation for semantic memories is is significantly less than it is for episodic memories. Right. And because we can remember a lot of those things like names and places and, uh, other fascinating nouns, uh, Mm -hmm. we can, we we confuse ourselves into thinking that our uh, episodic memory is equally as, um, reliable but it's really not because the degradation for episodic memory um, uh, is much greater than it is for semantic details. Right. And what you're talking about uh, as far as Julia Shaw's work is uh, was it's called fuzzy trace theory. Right. So in fuzzy trace theory, um, the idea behind that is that memories get separated into gist memories and verbatim memories and gist memories are are like episodic memories where they are um, remembering um, uh, concepts or, uh, Uh, events or kind of, you know, the gist of what was there. And then verbatim memories are stored or um, in the literature, it's called stamped when a memory is stamped into the uh, brain. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Verbatim memories are things like exact details, like this person was wearing this hat on this day, or this is, uh, you know, this is exactly what happened or, or, or whatever have you. And what, what Julia Shaw shows um, in her book, um, the memory illusion, is that gist and verbatim memories are actually stored separately um, in in different compartments of the brain. And then when you you try to bring that information together, you have to retrieve them from both sections. And you can either retrieve all of it, part of it, part of one or the other, one and not the other, or none at all. And and so this whole uh, process of of uh, memory storage and memory retrieval is is a hugely complicated process, and there's right. a myriad of things that can go wrong during that process. But we're completely unaware of that because we think that our memory, like you said, works kind of like a camera yeah. uh, or a video recorder, and we we don't understand that what we're doing when we're recalling a memory is we're we're changing it a little bit and we're adding details that that either like let, let's say something happened ten years ago, right? That I'm trying to recall. Well. I have changed in the last 10 years. I've been subjected to new experiences in the last 10 years. I've changed my opinion about things. I've seen new things. So all of this new information is going to get confabulated mm-hmm. with the old memory and my new uh, internal model of reality. And that's what's going to become. That's what I'm going to experience as a conscious memory. And a lot of the time it's just not even close, you know.
0: Well I tell you this is there's a great analogy in your book it's uh I would love for you to take credit but I you 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 gave it to guy Harrison uh, as you attributed it to him and it said that our memories are more like an old man living in our head telling us stories about what we remember and he changes the story with each telling that that is accurate I mean if you wanted to describe our memory that feels like it and you know sometimes the storyteller may be better or worse you know there's some great storytellers who get things just right there's some storytellers who like to make things a little more exciting don't let the truth get in the way of a good story kind of a thing uh so that's really interesting and i gotta say you know with with memories being created as you know Julia shaw we talked about creating false memories You, you get doctored photos you got deep fakes uh which make perception of reality even if we believe part of what we see all of a sudden now, you know, you got a lot of counterfeit bills running around, to go back to your vending machine analogy. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put uh, a link on the website, this is recent, where Fox News put up a, um, a photoshopped uh, a photoshopped photo of the judge who did the subpoena to, to get the um, the stuff from Mar-a-Lago, and it's the judge getting his foot rubbed by Maxine and Giselle, and they put it on the news station with the creditor from the meme, the meme website uh, where it was created, and in fact, it was just, you know, him being photoshopped from someplace else but this is you know you got a place of passing something off as real were they fooled were they not i don't know um but the point is is that some of these things can be created and be looked so real that even experts are fooled and that's where you get into some really tricky waters here john uh when it comes to being you know critical a critical thinker you know
2: yeah, absolutely. And and I guess your meme uh, example is a perfect example of like almost a literal uh, bill. Right. A meme is, uh, you know, the, the history of meme is, is, is really cool. Richard yep. Dawkins came up with the idea of a meme to uh, he wanted to convey a unit of cultural inheritance rather than a unit of genetic inheritance. And then he right. used uh, uh, the term meme from from uh, a combination of a couple Latin words to convey what he was actually trying to get. Get at. And nowadays nobody knows that they just know a meme is like a little picture with some caption on it. Right. But <laughs> the idea behind yeah. that is yeah. a meme is, is still is a unit of cultural inheritance, right? It's an yeah. idea that goes from brain to brain yeah. and, uh, and is either uh, accepted or rejected or laughed at or what have you. And, uh, yeah, I really think that that's, uh, <laughs> that's a good example of a piece of, um, of, of misinformation, uh, that's, you know, fed in, and it's going to depend on how good you are at critical thinking on how you analyze whether or not that meme accurately represents reality or not.
0: Well, and it, you know, we didn't get into confirmation bias We we skipped a couple things here because there's so much in your book to get to, but confirmation bias, you know, believing things that uh, agree with your opinion, rejecting all that disagrees with it. And that's a perfect example, because when you look at the meme, it's got the credit of the creator, which is telling you that they've adjusted the uh, the picture. <laughs> th- they're not hiding it. The creator's not hiding it. Um, you know, it's the person using it. It's they're they're missing what is obvious in front of them, either because they're, they don't want to see it or because they want to give other evidence that supports their their version of the details.
2: I got into inattentional blindness in the book and uh, you know inattentional blindness is basically saying that we are blind to things that we're not paying attention to. And another really good example of that was uh, have you ever heard the, the story about the spam killer?
0: I haven't, but I have, I'm going to put up on the website and a, a link to this. I've almost not mention it. The the video of the, um, about attention where there's, there's a bunch of people passing a ball and, and a gorilla walks in front.
2: The invisible gorilla.
0: Yeah. I'm going to put that on the website so people can see, but I have not heard about the, the spam, anything with spam.
2: So, so, um, there's an article written about a spam killer, right? And, um, this, uh, this killer was, was going around uh, murdering people who sent spam to uh, like you know spammers who sent spam to his computer right? Okay. And his trademark was that he would stuff the meat spam into their mouth, and that's you know was his <laughs> trademark signature right? Okay. Well, this this story is complete fiction, right? Sure. And the original <laughs> source of the story at the top of it says this is a work of fiction. Yeah. Right. Nonetheless, this story circulated online for months and and, and maybe even years, but for months and people were uh, um, like blown away that somebody would actually, you know, go around and killing spammers with this signature of meat spam in their mouth. And every single person failed to do exactly what you said is look at the little source that says we changed this. And all they had to do is look at the original source at the very top of it. It says this is a work of fiction. But there, you know, people are motivated to believe certain things. And when inattentional blindness and confirmation bias and those things come into play, they're going to completely miss that big, bold letter that says this is fake.
0: <laughs> no, you're exactly right. I mean, that's what War of the Worlds comes to mind. You know, I mean, there was uh, an announcement given at the beginning of the show. Now, that's audio. You can't go back to the beginning Rewind. It wasn't any on-demand at the time. Uh, but something similar goes on. But if you're not listening to all the details, you can believe something that isn't true. So the book comes out in three days. It's wonderful. This episode will air right as the book's coming out. How can people get a hold of it? Uh, how can people find you if they want to carry on a conversation? How do they do it?
2: People can follow me on Twitter at Skeptic John guy, and that's John with no H. Um, They could also look for my writings on thinkingispower.com, which is a website dedicated to promoting critical thinking and understanding uh, the the basic ideas behind it. Uh, And they can buy the book, Think Straight, and Owner's Manual for the Mind on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or pretty much anywhere uh, where you can get books online. I don't think I'm aware of any online distributor that doesn't have it at this time. And uh, on Twitter, you can follow me for... Uh, future writings, um, new projects, new releases, and all that kind of stuff
0: okay, wonderful well I, I will make sure that we have links to everything uh, uh, you know up so people can find it and of course, if you want to find me, if you want to find the show. Fascinating Noun on Twitter, Fascinating Nouns on Facebook, and it's youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn if you want to watch the videos. And all of this is encapsulated on one website, and that's fascinatingnouns.com. So that's where you find me. You know how to find John. Uh, John, thank you so much for all of this. This is an incredible, an owner manual to the mind. We all need it. I know that I thought mine was working at peak efficiency. I found out that it is not, but this helped me get back on track. So thank you for the book, and thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thank Thank you for having me. This was this was extremely fun, and uh, I, I really enjoyed being here and appreciate you having me on.
0: And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're gonna wanna subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform, that's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it. YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.